Dear Heavenly Father, we just um, thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this time here together, and we thank you for the gift of your son, God. We just pray um, that as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, that you just show up in our lives and in our hearts in new ways, that we can experience you um, as our father, as our savior, and as um, Jesus born in a manger, um, God with us, um, just more and more these next coming weeks. So we just thank you for your presence. We ask that you just fill each one of our hearts um, and souls with you today, and that you bless just this service and this congregation. Amen. <laughs> Hi guys, sorry, I'm, I'm new at this. Um, you guys have probably seen some videos of us or if you were here last week, um, I was sharing, but my name's Emily Betzler um, and I run Bought Beautifully, which is a marketplace that transforms lives lives and is popped up outside in the foyer. So we guys, we have been telling you guys about Give With Impact for the last um, couple weeks and we're here. So um, I just wanted to take a minute to tell those of you who haven't heard about us and what's happening out there, what's going on. So we have popped up, um, Bought Beautifully has 44 partners around the globe and these are all ministries who are living out God's call to love. And they're doing that in a variety of different ways just like each one of us lives out God's call um, to love in different ways. But what each of one of them has in common is that they are providing jobs, and they're providing jobs to populations who wouldn't otherwise have them. So they're working with people with disabilities in Jordan. They're rescuing girls from forced prostitution in India. They're working with um, women who have left prison in, in Texas. They're working with a variety of different populations to provide jobs. And what Bought Beautifully does is come alongside them to bring these products to a larger market so that we can use our purchasing power to, to ultimately change the world, to provide hope and opportunity to these, these people. So we are out here today with products um, from all of these different um, uh, partners. And honestly, I don't have to say too much. As you walk around and, and you look at them, as you touch them, I think you feel the heart and soul and hopes that have been sewn into and poured into these products. They're just so special. And that's the most exciting part of this job is when I open those boxes and I see what people create when they are given the opportunity to, that we are made in a creator's image and we can make beautiful things. So take a minute to walk around and look at those products. But what I really wanted to do was to show you some videos. So I had was talking to our partners and said, hey, we're gonna be here in Prescott. I want, I want our people to see you and know you. And so I got some videos from different partners who just wanted to say hello so you can really see the people who are behind your products. And so we have three videos from Haiti of the artisans who made some of your products, just saying, popping in, saying hello in Creole um, and wishing you all a Merry Christmas. So we maybe do. Bonjour, <laughs> so she's with Second Story Goods. He's with Haiti Design Co. <laughs> so they're all saying hello, good morning, um, and then some form of Merry Christmas. And I have one more. This is just a photo. I, we couldn't get the video to transfer over. These are the ladies over in Wawanda saying Merry Christmas. They're working away on um, Christmas tassels that you guys would, can see out there. But what we also wanted to do was take a video of you guys saying hello and Merry Christmas back to them because really what it's all about is this connectivity and how we are connected to each other through the products we buy and through the lives that we live. So if you guys don't mind, oops, we're going to do a little video and we're going to send it.
So that is um, ultimately what our heart is about, is the fact that we are all connected, um, and we want to make that connectivity um, just really apparent, and how exciting it is that we can use our gifting to change the course of these individuals' lives, to provide them hope, provide them opportunity, ultimately pathways out of poverty. Um, and we get to do that, and, and we get to know each other. So whether you ever meet in person or not, you get to wear a piece of their, their story or share in a piece of their story, and they in ours. So thank you for inviting us to be here today. We're so honored, um, and we'll just see you out there. Okay. Thank you, Emily. Well, we're going to uh, dive into our, let's see, we got three weeks left, I believe, in Esther. Uh, so we'll be in Esther in just a minute if you want to grab a Bible, or if you'd like one, raise your hand and someone will bring one to you. Uh, before that, though, I just wanted to discuss our, our Christmas schedule. So on your seat, there should have been a card that uh, will explain this for you. Uh, and we're doing something very different this year, so you'll want to pay attention, because otherwise you'll be lonely on Sunday, December 29th. So... On the 22nd, so a week from today, just normal gatherings like this morning, and then we'll be doing a Christmas Eve gathering and get everybody from both uh, gathering times, the 9 and 1045, together at 5.30 p.m. Uh, we're also looking for, I believe, four volunteers for kids' ministry that night, and so if you're interested in that, if you could talk to Whitney, that would be wonderful. But Christmas Eve gathering, 5.30 p.m., December 24th, in this room, we'll do a, a candlelight service, and it'll be a, a great way to to kick off our, our time together. And then lastly, on Sunday, December 29th, we will not be meeting or gathering in this room. Rather, uh, we will be gathering as communities, as families, or, or even individuals in homes. And what we're going to do is provide for you a, a package that will guide you through really just being the church together. And so we, we say all the time, and it's written up there if you can see behind this wall, that the church is a people who and not a place where. And so again, this room and what we do on Sundays doesn't define the church, but rather you are the church. And so we're going to provide you with a guide that will walk through uh, some scripture reading, some questions you'll either ask yourself or, or perhaps with your community. We'll include the elements to take communion together, and then some opportunity to reflect back through Colossians on 2019 and go, what are we thankful for this past year? And then guidance through Colossians 3 on how we want to approach 2020, to be praying for each other with that. And so I think it'll be a, a really good and, and healthy opportunity to be the church in a way that we're not used to, uh, a way that might make us slightly uncomfortable, but one that I think will be very rich. So again, December 29th, don't show up here because... You will be alone. Um, beginning, though, next Sunday and then on the 24th, we'll have these bags that have the guides for you of how to go about, if you will, doing church, but really being the church together that morning. So we'll provide that for you. We'll have emails and social media and everything going out this week to explain in more detail. So you have it on your card. Uh, yeah, please join us the next couple of weeks. We're looking forward to our time together celebrating uh, the birth of Jesus and, and the love of our Savior. Okay, with that said, I think that's all the announcements I had, so we're going to dive into Esther. The approach today is going to be a little bit different. We've almost wrapped up the story. We're in the last two chapters, and so this morning, I'm kind of going to read through, not the entire book, but read through it in highlights and, and little glimpses so that as you've heard about it for eight weeks and eight chapters or whatever it's been... Um, now you can kind of have cemented in the themes of what the author was attempting to communicate to us, really about circumstances. 
I think for us, oftentimes, the way we feel in life, our, our focus, our values are, are really connected to the circumstances we are currently in. And the reality is that circumstances fluctuate and, and change very quickly. I was thinking this week when I, I saw the news of the volcano that erupted in New Zealand, how quickly circumstances change. You have people that have probably paid thousands of thousands of dollars to be on vacation, to go on an excursion, to, view, to visit this beautiful island that happens to be a volcano, and in a matter of minutes, that erupts and changes life. And I actually think that that volcanic type of moment and eruption represents a little bit how circumstances work in life. We put all of our hope in, in things, places, pleasures, whatever it might be, only to have it gone in, in just a minute. It's that house of cards mentality. At this point in life, circumstances might be good. It might be something where your health is in a good spot. Your financial situation's good. You have healthy relationships. The, the different circumstances of life feel good, and we build this house of cards, but one thing can go wrong, and all of it can, cumble, can come uh, tumbling down in just a moment. And what we see in Esther is that that happens. For Esther, for Mordecai, and the Jewish people, their circumstances are terrible to start, yet God is still in control. For Haman, the enemy of the Jews, his circumstances are as good as could be until his house, his home, his life crumbles down. And what we see is that even where God's name is not known, he's clearly in control and providing. Satan is going to present us with two illusions that will keep us from believing that Jesus is in control through whatever circumstances we might be going through. And there's probably more than two illusions, but we're going to focus on two today. The first is this, illusion one. Satan's going to try to get you to believe that God is not good and God does not want what is best for you. He's going to place before you a picture, a perspective of looking at life, especially if circumstances matter the most, to where you will, you will consider God and think that God is not good and God does not have or want what is best for you. That, that certainly would have been very easy for Esther to believe. It would have been very easy for Esther to, to buy this lie. I mean, after all, her parents either died or, or worse, were murdered at a very young age. Her people are exiled. Her home is destroyed. She lives in an extremely racist culture where she can't even tell her ethnicity. And then she's forced into this uh, very traumatic and broken and brutal situation in the king's palace. Like Esther had a lot of reason to believe that God is not good and God doesn't want what's best based on her circumstances. Same with Mordecai and the Jewish people. But she doesn't give in to that lie. So we have to wonder, in our circumstances, does that illusion trap and tempt us? Paul, Paul Tripp speaks on this, and I, I think he, he paints a helpful picture for us. He, he says this, when God chooses something to enter your experience that you would have never planned for yourself, something that's hard and difficult, when the unexpected and unwanted and the unplanned enters your door, how do you respond? Do you question the goodness of God? Do you question his presence? Do you look over the fence and envy somebody's life? Or do you say, your Lord, you can lead me anywhere you want to have me. My rest is not in my circumstances. My rest is in you. How are you responding to the hard call of God? That doesn't mean that it's easy when circumstances are challenging 
to know that God is good and that God wants what's best for you, especially when you have an enemy seeking to deceive you with the illusion that God is not good. So how are you handling those circumstances in life? We all face both the broken and beautiful, and through the broken moments, how is that changing, altering, shifting the perspective you have about who Jesus is? The second illusion that we will be tempted with, each of us will face, is this. In the midst of our successes and victories and the beautiful moments, we will be tempted to think that we are in control and that we are the ones that are responsible for our success. Now, now clearly throughout the scriptures, God says that he made you brilliantly. Well, you are wonderfully made with gifts and abilities and skill sets, and so you are capable of a lot. You are meant for a lot. But a transition happens when we buy the illusion that we are responsible. It is because of us and our work and our gifting. Keyword there is gifting. It's something you've received that has led to successes and victories. And so maybe you're in a season this morning that is good, that is enjoyable. Where do you give credit? Do you glorify self or do you give glory to the one who's responsible? For Esther, uh, we face this as well. After they experience victory from the deepest and darkest pits of life, here's what we read in, in chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, all the good that had happened, and sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them, he commanded, he makes this a law, if you will, to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month Adar every year. Because during those days, the Jews got rid of their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun, as Mordecai had written them to do. And so recognizing the success, the health, the victory that they had achieved Mordecai didn't only recognize that, he recognized the temptations they would face as we all do in moments of victory and health and the beautiful moments of life. He knew they would be tempted to buy into the second illusion that they were in control and responsible for their own success. And so he establishes a national holiday on an annual basis called Purim in which they would celebrate, feast, and rejoice and give glory where glory was due to God and not self. Because each of us are tempted in the midst of our successes to take the credit rather than to give it where it is truly due. Tim Keller writes on this about us becoming the, or believing we're the own authors of our fate. He, he calls pride a kind of cosmic plagiarism. Pride looks at the things in life and says, yep, I'm the author of that. When in reality, God and God alone is ultimately responsible. God created us. God sustains us in being. God gave us our smarts, our ability to reason, and our families. He chose our country and century all of it is a pure gift from God. Pride overlooks all of this and says, nope, it's all me. I'm the author. I built this. I deserve it. And so my guess is maybe you fall into to one side more than the other. Maybe this season is, is one that's more broken. And in that case, you might buy into the illusion. You will be tempted to intentionally to think God is not good and God does not want what's best for you. Or maybe things are good and you will be tempted to say, I am the author of that. I am the creator of what has been good 
and I'm responsible. And both are equally dangerous. I want to take some time now to look through Esther, as I mentioned, kind of through the highlights. We'll start in the beginning, and we're going to look at it through three different perspectives. Uh, If you've been with us throughout this series, again, my hope is as I I read through kind of these bullet points, through the highlights of the account, that you'll have cemented uh, in your mind the themes of the, the scriptures, of what the author was intending for us to grab a hold of. And if you're new with us this morning, hopefully this catches you up and, and gets you uh, kind of on par with where we're at in the story. We'll start in chapter 1-1 one, one and see that the story, this account begins with Haman having all the power, control, wealth, and honor. But we read this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, uh, King Ahasuerus, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. And so the author is pointing out in this point, in the very first verse, this guy is basically king of the world at this time. In verse 4, for a full 180 days, almost half a year, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a a banquet lasting seven days, because half a year is not a good enough party, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material, the most expensive, silver rings on marble pillars, and they have an open bar where the king says, do not refuse anybody a drink that they want, because what he's doing in this moment is displaying his power, his control, and his wealth. That's the author's intent as we open the scene and the story. We skip to to chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. In verse 6, Haman learns who Mordecai's people were, the Jewish people, and he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Mordecai shamed him by not bowing down when he was supposed to, and so now Haman's going to respond. He scorns the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so he's going to go and present this idea to the king and make a request. He does so, and here's what we read in verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. So in this moment, Haman wants something. All he has to do is present his desires before the king. The king gives his ring, which is what the the law would be sealed with, in essence symbolizing you can do whatever you want in all the kingdom. Nobody has greater honor other than the king than Haman. No one has more control, power, or wealth than Haman. And so in the beginning of this story, we really begin to see how elevated Haman is and how good he is off in terms of his circumstances. Lastly, we read this. This comes in, I believe, chapter 6, verse 11. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his family and friends, about his many sons and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person... Queen Esther has invited to her banquet, and I'm invited again tomorrow. We read all of this pretty quickly, and so you can see that the author is setting the stage. He's building up the house of cards, if you will. Haman's circumstances, they look good. At at the same time that the author paints this picture, he paints a picture of terrible, destructive, broken circumstances for Esther, for Mordecai, 
and for the Jewish people. In chapter 2, verse 5, we read this. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been, these are important verbs, carried into exile, has no choice, has no control, has no power. Rather, he was carried with all of his people into exile. He was among those taken captive, and he had a cousin named Hadassah or Esther, whom he brought up. Why? Because she had neither father nor mother. So right away, these circumstances are quite different. They have no control. They're carried as captives. She has no parents. In verse 16, we read a similar theme. She was taken. She didn't necessarily choose. She was taken to King Xerxes. And we're going to read uh, over and over today this theme of taken, of carried, of hurried versus choice, power, and control. In chapter 3, we read this. After Haman uh, carries out his plan and sends it out with all the couriers, dispatchers were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. Remember, there's 127 of them with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law, literally a law put in place with a date set for the genocide of an entire nation. It was issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Chapter 4, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. Verse 2, but he went only as far as the king's gate. Why? Because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it does not have power, he does not have control, he does not have options. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know this is now Esther responding to Mordecai. The date's been set for their annihilation for this genocide, and Mordecai says, listen, you have to go speak to the king. And, and, and Esther responds, you know the law just as well as anybody else does. Anybody who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king, they may be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. Again, they're not in control. They don't have power. They don't have choices or options. And so we set the stage with two very different sets of circumstances. One looks to be very good, and one is clearly very bad. The second half of the story, as we've, we've seen, changes quite dramatically. It's, it's intriguing to see how quickly we're given this, this picture, this window, that's actually lifelike in many ways, of how quickly circumstances can totally reverse. Here's what happens to Haman in chapter 6, verse 12. After Mordecai returned to the king's gate... After Haman thought he was going to be honored and came up with an elaborate plan of how the king should honor him, but instead had to parade Mordecai around the town square and honor him, Mordecai returns to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. 
His advisors and his wife Suresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. This part's key now. Verse 14. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and what? Hurried Haman away. He no longer has the power or the control or the choices. He's now being hurried away. And a reversal has started to happen. The king recognizes who Haman is and what he's done to the king's queen. And he's infuriated. And one of the eunuchs speaks up and says, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He, Haman, had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. How fast the circumstances in life can change. And for Esther, Mordecai and the, the Jewish people reverses pretty quickly too. The king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. That's a, that's a pretty stark change from an orphan girl in a racist culture who really has no power or control to be offered half the kingdom. Again, 127 provinces. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be answered. They were drinking wine on the second day. She invites him back. And the king asked, Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. Make your request because now you have power, control, and choices. That same day, in chapter 8, verse 1, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to who? Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. The king says, write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. And they do so. The circumstances have entirely flipped and been reversed and really a matter of, of days towards the end of this story. Haman goes from the top to dead and Esther Mordecai and all the Jewish people go from soon to be dead to now in charge of Haman's estate and being offered half the kingdom. Circumstances are not reliable to build our faith on, to build our lives on. Well, what's even more amazing about this story is not the reversal of, of circumstances, but rather the way in which it happens, that throughout this book, all 10 chapters, God's name is not mentioned once. Yet the author of Esther so brilliantly shows us that even where his name is not known, even where his name is not mentioned, praised, or worshipped, he is still clearly in control. Chapter 9, verse uh, 26 says this, as Mordecai establishes as law this holiday. He says, therefore these days, or the narrative says, therefore these days were called Purim, from the word pur, which means lot because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. And so Haman cast lots per one day to determine the date on which all the Jewish people would be killed and annihilated. But at the end, they 
use the same word, pur, that turns into a holiday named Purim and becomes something they celebrate every year. Why? So they don't buy into the illusion that it was their successes and their control that reversed the circumstances. Mordecai recognized they would be tempted with that. Look at God's hand so actively involved in this story, even where his name is not mentioned. Chapter 2, verse 9, speaking of Esther's relationship with the king's servant who was in charge of the whole harem. She pleased him and won his favor. He provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best palace in the harem. When her turn came to come to the king, she pleased him more than anybody else, not just by chance. And we remember Mordecai's words. Maybe just for such a time as this, you were brought to this position, at this place, at this time, for your people. How about chapter 6 when we read that that night, this is the night Esther goes to the king, and he, he couldn't sleep after that. So he ordered the book of Chronicles to bore him to sleep, to be read, and they just happened to turn five years back to the time when Mordecai saved his life, but nothing had been done to honor the king. It just so happened that on that night he couldn't sleep. It just so happened that when he couldn't sleep, he asked for this book to be read. It just so happened that the people that read it decided to go five years back, not five days or five months, but five years to read this story. And the God whose name is not known or written or worshipped in this moment is clearly guiding each and every person's life in this story. But if we're honest, it would have been very, 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 very easy for them to buy into either of the illusions. Initially, when, when the circumstances were bad and broken, it would have been very easy to believe that God is not good and that God did not want what was best for them. And in the end, when they had success, it would have been very easy, understandable, to believe that they did something, that they were responsible, that they wrote the story. I mean, after all, Esther risked her own life. Mordecai encouraged her to do that, right? It'd be very easy to turn and give themselves the glory for what had happened and to do what we so often do, which is forget who it is that's provided along the way. Through all circumstances, literally, the lowest of low, like imminent death, and the highest of high, half the kingdom, and being queen, they learn to practice trusting God. And so I think the call for us from the book of Esther is to learn to practice, and that's a key word, not to perfect, because we don't do that, but to practice trusting God. Jesus, not in some circumstances, not when the circumstances are bad, not when the circumstances are good, but in all circumstances. Practice, not perfect, trusting Jesus. And so that, that brings up the question of, of how do we do that? It brings up the, the question of what do your circumstances look like right now? As we approach the end of 2019 and look forward to 2020, there's a chance, and I hope and I pray, that 2020 is filled with peace and grace and good and victory and celebration. 
And if so, I encourage you, I encourage myself, I encourage us as Restoration Church to give glory where glory is due when the victories and the good moments happen. Don't buy into the lie that you are the one responsible, but rather the author of our, our faith, the perfecter of it, the creator of all that is good, he's responsible. And so with thanksgiving, we praise and worship the one who's given. Hopefully 2020 looks like that. If that's the case, we can't buy into the second illusion. As, I, as we approach the end of 2019 and I reflect on 2019, 2019, for a lot of people, I think, people in this room, people in this city, all over, has felt like a year of a lot of tragedy, a lot of brokenness, a lot of tears and pain and questions, a lot of circumstances being just ugly. And in the midst of that, we can't be tempted. Or we, let me rephrase that. We will be tempted, and we cannot buy into the illusion that God is not good and God does not want what is best for us because even when the circumstances are bad, he does. Some of you were with us when we uh, were in our, our series this summer that we called Streams. Um, and, and at that point in time, my wife Chelsea was, was pregnant, and about Friday night, one of those weeks that we were in this series, we recognized that something, something wasn't right and thought she could be having a miscarriage. And so as we were processing that, but not sure, a couple days went by, and Sunday morning came along, and I, I got here earlier than her, um, and she was supposed to serve in our kids that morning. And when I saw her, her face, when she came in the doors over here, was very, very, very different than that morning. There was now no doubt or question about if she was going to have a miscarriage. She was. And in about the minute or so that I had to communicate with her, I gave her a hug. And that's all I could do. That was maybe the hardest thing that morning because I had to come stand here and teach and she had to go serve in our kids as this was happening. And as it just so happened, because it didn't just so happen, the stream that I was teaching on, or practice, we were talking about practices that morning, that months in advance had been planned for me to teach on, was on celebration through uh, the broken and beautiful of life, both, because that's what we're called to do. And as it just so happened, I, in advance, had picked Psalm 145 to, to teach out of that morning. And I got up here, and I was, I was going to start teaching and I, I attempted, with tears in my eyes, to read through these first three verses. I want to I read them for you. Here's what I read. God was going to make me, out of his generosity, practice what I was preaching. I exalt you, my God, the King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. I will honor your name forever and ever. Yahweh is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. It took me a lot longer to read those three verses that day. And it was hard. But here's the thing. I believed every word that was written. Because God is good. Even in those circumstances, I don't have the answers. I don't know why. The hardest part was that I couldn't love and support and be with my wife in, in the hardest part of it. But God is still good in that moment. 
I was talking to my sister this Friday, and her and her husband are pregnant. They're going to have another child, which is something worthy of celebration. And she was telling me that she got to hear the heartbeat just the other day, and she was telling her daughter, so my niece, who's for this. And so my niece looked at her mom and said, why does our baby still have a heartbeat, but Aunt Chelsea's baby's heart stopped beating? It's a really good question, isn't it? And and my sister Drew responded perfectly. She said, well, maybe because Jesus wanted to be with that baby right now. To which my little niece said, how rude. (laughs) And that can be... That can be our response, right? I think that can actually be the illusion and to a degree maybe what I felt that morning, right? Like, God, why? Especially for my wife's sake, why? Why does she have to go through this? Why right now? It's just not good. It's not the way it's meant to be. I know that's not what you created us for. God, why? Like, how rude sometimes can seem appropriate. But it isn't rude. I don't know why it's not rude. I don't know why that was right in that moment, but it was. In the same way that Esther's parents not being there for her, her dealing through the the circumstances and brokenness of racism, being forced, taken captive, it doesn't make sense. It's not right. It's not God's intent. But in the midst of those broken circumstances... What we are called to do is proclaim, I exalt you, my God, the King, and I will not forget that you are good. I might struggle with it. I'll probably wrestle with it. I'll need people to support me through it. But I exalt you, my God, the King, and praise your name forever and ever because what? This is not how the story Circumstances do not define life. They define a moment. Jesus is in control. And so how do we practice trusting Jesus through the good, the bad, the broken, the beautiful circumstances? I'm going to talk about two ways as we close. First, we we don't buy into the illusions we discussed. And in order to not buy into them, we have to remember who God is. And, And ironically or not, I think Psalm 145 does as good a job as any of the scriptures, as any of the psalms, to paint the picture of who God is. And so I want to just read in its entirety that psalm that I read that morning. It says this, I exalt you, my God, the King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. I will honor your name forever and ever. Yahweh is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wonderful works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts, and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. All you have made will thank you, Lord. The godly will praise you. 
They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, unlike circumstances. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and gracious in all his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him and all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. My mouth will declare Yahweh's praise. Let every living thing praise his holy name forever and ever. I want to read one last quote that talks about accepting our circumstances. Elizabeth Elliot says this, when the answer is no to our request to God regarding our circumstances, then we know that God has something better at stake. Far greater things are at stake. There is another level, another kingdom, an invisible kingdom which you and I cannot see now, but toward which we move and to which we belong. Again, we might not understand the why or how God is answering or the timing, but if that's the case, it just means he has something better planned. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it means he has something better planned. Second component of how do we practice not perfect, but practice trusting Jesus through all circumstances. Second and last is this. We present our requests before Jesus. I'll close with Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says to the church of Philippi. I will say it again, rejoice. And he means always. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. It's the same word used as in Psalm Psalm 145. Don't worry about anything. The NIV says, do not be anxious about anything. There's this imagery of anxiety. It comes from this picture of being choked. Do, Do not be out of breath. Do not be lacking for air. Do not be drowning or choked by your circumstances. Do not let anything cause you anxiety. doesn't mean things aren't real, but don't be choked out by them. But in everything, not in some things, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Then what happens? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, or, (coughs) excuse me, or all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How do we practice trusting Jesus through all circumstances? We present our request to him and trust that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. When I go, I can't get through this. When you go, this is too hard. When you go, God is not good. When you go, I earned this. I did this because of my gifting. In all circumstances, there's a peace that surpasses all understanding, and it's the peace that can only come with the name of who? The name of the God whose name was not written in Esther, though he was in control. And his name is Jesus. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Again, doesn't mean you'll get the answer you want, when you want, 
but his peace will guard your hearts and you will know that this circumstance defines the moment, but it does not define life. Jesus does. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, and commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with all of you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me, Paul says to the church. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. How? I am able to do all things, get through all circumstances, practice trusting Jesus through the broken and beautiful, through him, Jesus, who strengthens me. And so how do we practice trusting Jesus through all circumstances? Don't buy into the illusions that God is not good and that God doesn't want what's best for you. He does. But no, Satan will tempt you to believe that. Don't buy into the illusion that your successes and victories are your successes and victories. They are gifts from the Father who is the provider, the giver of all good gifts. Remember who his character is and then present your request to him and the peace of God, which makes no sense, which goes beyond reasoning, which surpasses all understanding, will be yours in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love and your peace that goes beyond us, that can only be accepted as a gift because it's not something we can achieve or, or receive. God, I pray for each person in this room, not knowing all the circumstances, not knowing what's good or what's bad, that through it all, in every moment, you're with us, you are near, you are good, and you are in control. Comfort us through the broken, guide us through it, lead us, Bless us with humility and the victories and in the strength, the beautiful moments. May you receive all the glory. May you lead us in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we uh, enter our response time, I want to go ahead and invite Bill Eaton up to join me. Uh, you've, you've heard from Bill uh, a number of times, and Bill is one of our... Uh, our elders and process uh, elder candidates. And on January 26th, we will be transitioning from our management team who's had the authority over the church for the last three years and, and the oversight to local elders. And uh, that's something we are just so thankful for. The, the elder team has been such a gift and a blessing to me personally. Uh, and Bill has done an incredibly gracious job uh, guiding us together and being, being such a gift. And so, Mark down January 26th on your calendars. That will actually also be the three-year birthday for the church. So we will have been a church for three years. On that three-year birthday, we'll be establishing uh, local elders. And so we're going to just throw a big party and have tons of food and a bounce house and kids and balloons and everything we can to say. We want to rejoice with Thanksgiving because God is good and he's the one that receives the glory. And it's going to be a, a good day. And so I wanted to invite Bill up to uh, lead our response time this morning. So as we continue to worship and to celebrate.
Uh, we respond to God as he's, as he's spoken to us through his word this morning, through his servant to Landon, also through Paul Tripp and really Tim Keller as well. And there's three ways that we respond uh, that our practice here at Restoration. First is reflection. Is maybe we reflect on what we heard this morning. Maybe a, a good way to reflect on that is what do you believe about God? When Landon says that, that God is good, I, I'm, always, I'm always reminded what David said is in the Psalms. He said that David said that God is good and that God does good. No matter what happens in my life, the first thing I do is I go through the attributes of God. Who do I believe him to be? Infinitely trustworthy. Infinitely faithful. Steadfast in his love for me. Will never desert me. So it's a good time for you to reflect on who do you believe God to be? Next is communion. And God's prepared a feast for us here through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm reminded, and I think all of us know John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him would never die but have eternal life. But very few of us know John 3.17. And 3.17 always spoke to me, is that God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So consider as you come to the table this morning that, as Jesus said, this bread, this, my body is broken for you. And you take the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood poured out for forgiveness of your sins. That not only are you saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, but he's provided for a new way for you to live today. We're assured of the future, but he's found a, a way for us to live today as well because we live by his grace. And lastly, we return to God what he's first given to us through our tithes and offerings. And a couple of things here. We are a little bit short in November of our goal, our objective. So we, we're praying that we would make that up in, in December as well. So maybe as a family or individuals, prayerfully consider what God would have you do. What God would have you return to him. We're praying that we hit our budget this, this month and plus make up for, for November as well. And then the elders have uh, two special projects before us in 2020. Number one, uh, with the number of youth that we have, the number of children that we have, the youth in the city that we love to hear through the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, we're creating a special budget or hope to create a special budget of, of approximately 15000 Now, we don't know when we would bring on a youth pastor or whether he'd be full-time or uh, part-time. But our initial budget is 15000 So maybe pray about would you want to make a contribution to that in addition to your other ties. And then lastly would be we, we need to upgrade our website. And our budget for, web, for that is about $7,500. Our, our website permits us to not only communicate within the body, to celebrate certain things what God has done within the body, but also communicate outside the body. And I would just say that as you... As you do that and you pray about that, uh, afterwards when you do give, thank God for allowing you to give. You know, it just encourages your heart when you just smile and say, Father, thank you for allowing me to give this morning. So let's take a couple of minutes now. Let's go to a time of reflection. After communion, there's two tables here, three tables in the back, or a table in the back. Go as an individual, as a family, as a community group. Let's go to prayer.